in the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Well, I think the real problem for the profession is going to be both in courtroom settings and in law firm settings, if you don't have your junior members of the profession there observing what's going on, seeing how cases are run, seeing how cross-examination works in real time, or sitting in partner's offices and listening to how the partner deals with clients on the phone or with opposing solicitors on the phone, they're not going to pick up by osmosis the kinds of things that you and I picked up when we started. Welcome to On Just Terms. In this series, we look at the changing nature of corporate risk in Australia by speaking to the people at the front line of Australian litigation who will shape the future of the Australian legal risk landscape. In this episode, I'm joined by the President of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, the Honourable Justice Julie Ward, who requires no introduction. Justice Ward is one of the most accomplished lawyers in the country. She was the first female solicitor to be appointed directly to the bench of the New South Wales Supreme Court in 2008, where she sat in the equity division before becoming a judge of appeal in 2012 and chief judge in equity in 2017. In today's episode, we'll discuss her honours perspectives on the efficient management of complex litigation, the particular challenges presented by the occurrence of class action multiplicity and the evolving nature of legal practice in the post-pandemic era. Justice Ward, thank you so much for being gracious with your time and joining us on this episode of On Just Terms. We're very grateful. Judge, one observation you made in a speech some years ago was about the immediacy of the demands on legal professionals within the profession from an increasingly international client base, uh, the demands on their time, instant turnaround, cases becoming more complex. It occurred to me that that observation still rings true today of our profession. And I was wondering if you would like to refresh your observation in that regard and whether things have changed, improved or roughly remained the same. Certainly. Well, I think I think I made that observation, Jason, in the context of looking at how things had moved since I started in the legal profession and the days when you were permitted the luxury of having some time between a request for advice or a response to the other side or the like and the time now when the response time is is expected to be almost immediate. Well, it's the old, the answer that was due yesterday type uh, argument. And it, that is not helped by increasing complexity and length of litigation. And it's not helped by the demands of producing volumes of material. And we saw that we saw that affect the legal profession in a very direct way, for example, in the Royal Commission on Banking, uh, because anecdotally, the law firms were working around the clock. And if they weren't all working around the clock locally, they were outsourcing internationally and still working around the clock, albeit from other areas. So uh, I think it's safe to say that the pressures haven't eased. I think the pressures have increased. And I'm not certain, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what the studies show as to how the pandemic has affected that, because in some respects it might have made things 
a little easier because the expectations might have been changed because of the conditions under which people were operating. But from other perspectives, it might have increased the pressures because of the difficulty of meeting demands with the constraints that people have faced. So I certainly don't think it's really eased. I think it has increased. Perhaps law firms and institutions like the courts have become more adept in dealing with those things or recognising those pressures, but it's it's a pretty much, it's a line ball on that one, I think. Judge, uh, that uh, answer reminds me of one struggle in my own practice, which is increasingly with the availability of uh, uh, cyber data, the, the cases are becoming so documentarily heavy, uh, certainly much larger than they used to be. and while we're searching millions of documents to get a tender list of a couple of uh, thousand, at the end of the day, the case turns on a couple of folders. And I wonder if you've observed the parties struggling to, to get to those couple of folders, uh, because it seems to me they're having to make forensic choices that are becoming harder and harder with the universe of documents that are potentially relevant. I, I do think that that's a problem. I think that we get numerous cases, both at first instance and on appeal, where you get volumes and volumes and volumes of court books, electronically as well as, as in hard copy. But the reality is people don't take you to very much of it. And if there's an expectation that the judge is going to rummage through all that material and come up to the judge's own view about things, well, that's misguided and probably not in the interests of procedural fairness in any event. So it really, the most effective, I think, court advocacy involves a situation where you are down to a couple of, of small folders, even if they're provided during the course of the hearing, during the course of cross-examination or something like that, because it focuses attention on what's the real issue and dispute, which is what everyone's trying to do. Judge, one type of case that has influenced this trend in greater complexity is class action litigation. We, we are living in a world now where litigation funding is a, is a permanent feature of, of our legal system and funding and class actions like all types of litigation have good and they're bad. Um, I'm wondering if the emergence of class actions, I know you're not as deeply familiar with the complexities of the management of class actions, but are they also creating special challenges for the courts, perhaps special challenges for practitioners? What One feature I observe is they're so outward facing, every decision in the case could affect thousands of people, uh, and yet they're no, they're no easier in terms of complexity. Uh, no, I think they do have their specific issues and specific complexities precisely because of the fact that you're dealing usually with a large group and with an uncertain group because you won't necessarily know the composition of the group at the out well you, you definitely won't know at the outset and at the time at which you do know it then all sorts of decisions have already been made. Uh, I, I think some of the complexities, the, the volume of paper and the amount of time taken to 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 progress things in terms of discovery probably are no different to multiple party litigation, but it is affected by the need to have constant oversight of issues such as the costs that are being incurred, because one way or another, you'll end up having to justify them at the end of the day. So it's, uh, it's symptomatic of an issue that affects all litigation, but it has its own, 
I think, its own particular complexity. And it's not helped uh, insofar as you do get some kinds of class actions where there's a little bit of a rush to the courtroom in the sense of pressure on getting things filed in order at the time when it was thought that being first in time would give you a particular advantage. And that means not necessarily has there been considered or sufficiently considered a view taken about the pleadings or about the issues that are to be raised, which, which I think increases the cost because it then has to be revisited down the track. That resonates, Judge, and, and I won't ask you to at all comment about reforms, but is it, a, is it one of the great challenges in class actions in this age of multiplicity that, yes, there is a desire to get to court quickly uh, and efficiently, but equally um, that can create a situation where the courts are dealing with things um, not months into the proceedings, but perhaps longer where there's a new proceeding that emerges and then there needs to be a process for regularising which proceeding should continue. It feels like um, it may be that the practitioners need some guidance so that those things are happening as early as possible in the proceedings so this, this process moves efficiently. Yes. Well, I, th I think very much for class actions, having heavy case management at the outset is important. Uh, be just for that reason, you need to confine the issues and you need to make sure that steps are being taken that progresses it in the interests of the group as a whole. Uh, but the issue about how you do that is, a, is, another, is another matter and the question of costs and how you control costs becomes a difficult one. It might be that some of the judges in the federal court, mostly in the context of multiplicity, have seen the utility in the appointment of a, a cost assessor, not in a way that's visible to the respondent or the defendant, but I guess, to assist the court properly monitor those costs. Is that something that you think has value or is it really a case-by-case -case basis? In well, I'm certainly aware of the case in the federal court where the judge was perhaps a little scathing about the usefulness of <laughs> such a process, but I won't go into that one. Uh, but yes, look, I think anything that helps the parties and particularly the party that's incurring all those costs up front, which is usually the plaintiff in the class action suit, Anything that helps them focus on how to conduct the matter efficiently and cost efficiently has got to be an advantage. And if involving a costs assessment officer at the outset helps, then it will remove potential for a whole lot of problems down the track. Uh, it's just there is sometimes a balancing exercise as to whether you're really making more costs for the parties by putting in some of those mechanisms. So, and, and I suppose you could say that about all of the early case management procedures, you've got to be careful that it's not incurring costs for the sake of it, that it's actually having the desired effect of, of getting to the real issues in dispute quickly. Your Honour, I'd like to pivot from complex litigation for a moment to talk about a no less important topic. Um, and the context is this, I know, Your Honour, doesn't need me to articulate the significant achievements in your ongoing career, but many of them were firsts for women. But uh, as a profession, we, we've still got a long way to go to ensure we're uh, appropriately representative of the country we, we, we work in. Uh, particularly for women, I, I know that partners and principals still only make up about 33% in New South Wales, and it's in the mid-teens for senior, counsels at the, senior counsel at the bar. Um, could you offer any reflections on the work that 
we've still got to do around diversity across all um, all types of diversity and perhaps what the profession can do to push this along. I, my sense is it's ever too slow. Yes. Well, I think it's it's an We've come a long way from when I started in the legal profession and there were no women partners in large law firms. And I do think the glass ceiling has been broken. But what I think is reflective of, of the problem for women is uh, a, there's more of an attitude of wanting to juggle work-life balance issues and the like. And so... I, I was rather taken aback to have some senior women in the profession say, well, they didn't want to make the sacrifices that they'd seen other women make in order to get where they had got to. And I think the steps that the law firms are taking about job sharing or flexible work hours and all that sort of um, facilitating women to have a career but have a family and other interests as well is very helpful. And I don't think it's it's negative for the men because they can take the advantage of that kind of thing as well. So I think those sorts of things are very good. Where we need to work on diversity perhaps even more than the gender gap is um, in relation to, for example, Indigenous people in the law. And I know that there are various law firms that have got programs that involve cadetships or clerkships and the like and the court encourages those sorts of things as well and and other areas where there's lack of representation in the in the courts or lack of overt representation in the legal profession so i would like to think that issues such as sexual orientation gender race creed and the like no longer are stumbling blocks but we need to make sure that there's not unconscious bias that sets up hurdles for them yes Judge, has, has COVID, at least in one respect, taught us a little bit about working more flexibly or perhaps that hasn't or won't translate as much to the courts where I get the impression judges would, they do prefer seeing practitioners in person and, I mean, in a practical sense, testing witnesses is much harder remotely. Yes, it certainly has shown, I think, the whole profession that we can do a lot from home if we have to and that there are some circumstances we're doing it working from home is more cost effective or more efficient. In the courts, we, when we were in hard lockdown, we still, I still came into court every day, but it was a very surreal experience because I would be there and there would be a court reporter and a court officer and nobody else. Uh, and uh, I think, yes, there are issues about testing witnesses uh, I think it's harder actually for the barristers to cross-examine over AVL than it is for us to assess witnesses because not so much is placed on demeanour as, as on the consistency of their evidence with other objective evidence. But I think the real problem for the profession is going to be, both in courtroom settings and in law firm settings, if you don't have your junior members of the profession there observing what's going on, seeing how cases are run, seeing how cross-examination works in real time, or sitting in partners' offices and listening to how the partner deals with clients on the phone or with opposing solicitors on the phone, they're not going to pick up by osmosis the kinds of things that you and I picked up when we started in the legal profession, and I think that's what we've got to be careful about. So I think we need to balance the, work, the advantages of working from home with the advantages that one gets 
from being on the ground, so to speak? Yeah, I follow entirely. And even outside of the um, tools of the trade knowledge that's gained from interacting with people, um, just developing your, your legal personality, the way you'd yes. like to practice. I know you had the benefit of working with some people with strong and different personalities. Yes. It is harder, isn't it, in, in the remote context? It, it is harder. And, and the other thing that you lose, at, uh, I've found in court, what you lose from the bench when you don't have solicitors or barristers in front of you is you lose the, the visual cues that you would get if somebody is in front of you. And they, I suppose, lose the visual cues that they would get looking <laughs> at raised eyebrows or the like. I mean, it has been said that I have the worst poker face in the court, <laughs> something I can't possibly accept. No, I, but, I would uh, reject that as well, <laughs> Judge, of course. <laughs> I have noticed from being in your list on occasion that even the sim simply understanding who's talking can be difficult. The, <laughs> the, the telephone, the telephone <laughs> directions hearings were a nightmare, absolute nightmare. I'm very pleased that they're beyond me, they're past me now, but uh, yes, you couldn't tell who was talking. Justice Ward, the youngest uh, partner appointed at uh, what was then Mallison's, uh, who, who, fe youngest female partner, and then uh, appointed to the bench from the ranks of the solicitors, and, and that was also a rare achievement. Uh, I'd wondered if it's not too much of an imposition, if I could ask you how you found the advantages of coming to the bench uh, from, from being a senior lawyer practising as a solicitor. Uh, I think I've heard you say that it had advantages in terms of appreciating the commercial context for disputes, which resonates. Um, that was during, I think, the, the speech initially given when you were appointed. So I'm wondering how it's gone. Well, I like to think that I've been able to bring, yes, um, a knowledge of the commercial perspectives involved in the matter, but also a, a knowledge of hands-on what's involved in dealing with matters. I mean, how, how much time is taken in discovery or how much time is taken in preparing affidavits of witnesses and, and the like that, it, that can be easily forgotten if you're in a very senior position and you're just directing that work be done. Any solicitor, I think, tends to come at a, a big disadvantage to those who've practised at the bar is that there's less familiarity with evidentiary objections and the like. So I used to find that was tended to be the more stressful part of things. But I think I've, I've hopefully managed to get over that one and people told me to stop worrying about it because I was in equity and I could just admit everything <laughs> subject to relevance. <laughs> but but from, from the point of view of a solicitor coming to the bench, uh, I think one of the big advantages is you bring a perspective of the coalface and you understand that there are various pressures facing people, in particularly in commercial life, but if you come from a different area of practice, you'd understand the, the pressures in that kind of, of situation as well. So it enables you perhaps to view the documentary materials with a bit of a mixture of cynicism and understanding is how I would put it. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that cuts both ways for those before you because yeah, so. they can't necessarily submit that something's going to take longer than it should. <laughs> I think so. And, uh, and, and I have my expectations of solicitors in court. So uh, when I started as a solicitor, I was really trained to take verbatim notes of what went on in court so that if you needed to, your notes could be relied upon by counsel. And uh, I sit there sometimes and see, not you, Jason, but I do see sometimes 
junior instructing solicitors just sitting and looking out of the window and I think, no, no, <laughs> someone's got to tell them <laughs> to sharpen up. <laughs> I'll be very careful the next time I'm before you judge. Mm. And, and relatedly, um, I know that in your lists and, and, and now as president, um, you don't have to um, be reminded of this important feature, but I imagine you see a role for the courts as at a very early stage trying to diagnose what this case is, is going to be, a case that's yes. going to be drowning in documents. There, there might be ways to shortcut that, but a case that's going to be short and sharp, maybe that's there's a need to push the parties further towards mediation at an earlier stage. I know every case is different, but yes. that must be a part of the role that's challenging. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, I'm a, I've been chair of the ADR steering committee at the court uh, since about 2017, and... We do encourage mediation, but there can be resistance and there's a question of what time is the best time to do it. So some lists, it happens as part of the listing procedure. So if you've got matters in the family provision list, then you need to have had a mediation before you can move to hearing. In, in commercial disputes, there's often the view taken or the perception I get is that the view taken is they're large commercial entities and they know what's what, and they can sort things out by themselves. But I think for large, complex litigation, case management to define the issues is critical. And if that involves some mediation along the way, can save a lot of time and effort. And I really think we've got to get over the kitchen sink approach of litigation. That it resonates, Judge, in, particularly in the area I'm most closely focused on in class actions, because there is a sometimes difficult choice. I wonder if this is um, evident from your vantage point between having a mediation at a time when it's going, you're actually going to be able to persuade your opponent. There's a little bit of discovery, a little bit of evidence is exchanged, but equally recognising that that can take a couple of years. And so you lose the, the commercial opportunity to settle early. Yes. That's a bit of a conundrum for some of these larger complex cases. Yes, no, it must be. It, well, obviously, it's difficult because you really that you don't want to be incurring costs unnecessarily taking taking a large amount of time to amass a whole amount of material if something's going to turn on a, um, a small issue is doesn't make sense at all and I had a matter at first instance uh, not so long ago where millions and millions of dollars were spent by the parties in preparing for this large litigation under the expectation the plaintiff had of a huge recovery. And the difficulty was that when it came to testing the experts' economic evidence, I didn't think that stacked up. I didn't think that there was a loss at all. Now, that's, that's not the first case where I've seen that sort of thing happen. I've seen it happen when I was working as a solicitor as well. And it just shows that focusing in those kinds of disputes, focusing on loss, has there been any loss, will we be able to prove it and how will we be able to prove it, is really critical at an early stage because there's no point running large litigation to end up with nominal costs orders or nominal damages and, and then costs orders. Yeah, it's a powerful point. And it's a reminder for defendants and plaintiffs to be having those conversations as early as they practically can. Yes, yes. 
Judge, you've been very gracious with your time, but it, I w couldn't let you go without asking you one final question that's not directly related to the practice of law, and that is this. Um, there'll, there'll be a lot of members of our audience who are aspiring to, to achieve a fraction of what you have in your career, long but continuing. Um, I'm sure there are many lessons that you've learned or sage advice that you might pass along to a practitioner looking to cut their teeth in, in, the, in the space of complex litigation. Impossible to summarise briefly, but are there, are there some that resonate with you that you would like to share? Well, I think, uh, as I think probably the first thing I'd say would be having a mentor, not necessarily a formal mentor, perhaps an informal mentor, Having someone that you admire and you follow in their footsteps can be extremely helpful. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing that, that I was very lucky to be able to get when I was working as a solicitor. I worked with some fabulous partners and other lawyers. And it was something that I had when I worked as a year as the associate to Sir Nigel Bowen. And so, I mean, that was just invaluable that experience both in observing what was going on in the bar and seeing how things were done from the point of view of the bench and working out what kind of area of practice you wanted to be in and the like. So I spoke recently at a Sydney University Advancement of Women program and I boiled it down to a couple of points but they included you know to study and work hard and not be too precious about things, just get on and show. I mean, merit, merit in my view, will always shine out if you put the effort in. Justice Ward, these are traits you're known by. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're very, very, very grateful for you devoting your time to speak with us today. I'm sure the audience has benefited from it. So thank you profusely for that. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you. And thank you to Freehills for hosting it. Oh, you're very welcome. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.